Well, you know you are old when your kids get in the car with you and every once in a while they'll comment, why do you always have that on NPR? And uh, I want to go, I don't always have it on NPR. Sometimes, and you know what? I have it on there often because I'm flipping through channels and every once in a while, you know, something will come on NPR, This American Life or something, and I'm telling you, it's a story. It's just one of those odd stories. It's kind of like quirky and whatever, and it just gets me hooked. And so I'm listening and I will get where I'm going. I'm where I want to go, but I'll stay in the car because I want to hear the end of the story. And, you know, leave it on NPR. Well, this happened within the last year or so. Uh, I was driving and I picked up a story and they were speaking to a, a lady in a little village in Northern Ireland. And it just caught my attention. And this lady had been working for years to get a designation from the IDA for her village. And it turns out she got the designation from the IDA and this village went from nothing off the beaten path to, oh, this is a must-go-to place on the entire planet. And you may be wondering, well, what in the world is the IDA and why would their designation really matter? Well, the IDA is the International Dark Sky Association. And they scour the planet for those places on our planet where at night it is as dark as it was meant to be. It's rare. Think about light pollution, populations. There's just not many of those places literally on the planet Earth. Well, in the United States, there are two spots that meet a certain criteria according to the Bortle Dark Sky Scale. This is like the Richter Scale for earthquakes. You got the Bortle Dark Sky Scale. Well, there are two places that qualify for and hit this uh, scale at pristinely dark. Just two in the United States. From these spots with the blind eye at night, you can, quote, see the marbled structure of the Milky Way, faint particle bands running east and west, and even the Milky Way's nucleus. Wow. In a paradox, we readily know but rarely ponder. Some things are most clearly seen in the dark. There is what I'm going to call a clarity of darkness. And it's in fact a principle that's essential to the life of faith. Today we continue our study through Abram's life. We're going Genesis 12 all the way to 25. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 15. And I'm going to take you, the text is going to take us, I should say, to one of those pristinely dark spots on the planet. And I want you to know that at that place, and this is very important, oftentimes it's only at that place that we can clearly see what matters most. And the reason I say this is that our text is actually about the trustworthiness of God's promises. God is confirming that his word is trustworthy. And I think we would all agree to the degree to which you are convinced that God's word is trustworthy, that's the degree to which you live with hope. That's the degree you live with hope. I'm convinced it's true. 
And that's what really, really matters. I think when we understand this text that this could become your go-to text and that would be theologically rock solid. When your faith is wavering, when you're barely holding on, when you go, I I don't know how we're going to go through this, this becomes the text of choice. Last week, Michael took the first part, verses 1 through 7, and he said that in this passage, God is giving two confirmations that his word is trustworthy. Verses 1 through 6, you notice he, uh, Abram is complaining, right? It's uh, asking these questions, a biblical complaint. Lord, you promised children. You promised innumerable children. I've got none. And God says, come outside. Look up at the sky. I'll bet it was pristinely dark, by the way. Count them if you can. I can't. Neither will you be able to count the number of those who will come from you. Not in your clan. I'm talking, Abram, from your loins, your DNA. Now we pick up the second confirmation. That's 7 through 21. The second way that God's going to assure Abram that his promise is trustworthy. And if you've read ahead, and by the way, I hope you do. I hope you just keep reading ahead, and you're you're way ahead of us. And if you've read ahead in this story, you know this. What we're about to read is spooky dark, strange, terrible. You read it, you know, honestly, I read it and I go, that's a bad dream. Well, it's anything but, actually. I'm going to take it as it unfolds, and it unfolds in three parts. Preparation, promise, and assurance. So there's the flow of the text goes 7 through 11, preparation, preparation. And then we pick up the middle section, 12 to 16, promise, preparation, promise. And then the back end, 17 to 21, assurance, assurance. You with me? Three parts. We'll let it unfold before us. Look at 7 through 11. God's word to you and to me today. After verse 6 where it says, Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We continue today, verse 7. And he, God, said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. I'm going to tell you something. You read on into Exodus and you get the same phrase. He uses the very same words when he looks at the nation and says, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. You see, he's foreshadowing what's to come. Verse 7, Abram, he said, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. We'll stop there. Last week, Michael mentioned that Abram's questions were actually biblical complaints. And I want to revisit that just for a moment. Uh, Abram did not lack faith. Let's just get that settled. Verse 6 settles it once and for all. Abram's the man of faith. So he asks these questions or these biblical complaints, you see, not from a lack of faith, but because he has faith. Well, what do I mean? Well, when we think of the word complaint, 
you know, between ourselves, and I, this is true of me, you know, when I'm complaining, I'm complaining, and my complaint is rooted in my self-interest. I can't believe how they just treated me. I can't believe I just paid all that money for that meal and that person. I'm going to get on customers. You, know, you see, that's how we complaints, complaints flow out of self-centeredness, quite frankly. But what I'm going to call a complaint of faith, it flows out of a heart of belief. Now, I've, I've, I've uh, caught myself many times and I've not caught myself many times with my kids where my kids will complain. Now, I'll also know as parents, kids complain and oftentimes it's just selfish complaining. But I'm going to tell you, my kids at times have complained to me and it's actually been a complaint of faith. And I miss it. And what, Lord, what do you mean a complaint of faith? Well, I mean this. I promise my kid I'm going to do something and I don't do it. And so my child says, Dad, you promised, why didn't you? That's a complaint of faith, you see. That, that's a complaint where, why are they com- complaining? Because they believed my promise. That's a good thing. I didn't deliver. And in my worst moments, I'm defensive, right? And but in a moment, maybe, you know, of spirit-filledness, I recognize that's a complaint of faith. They are taking my promise seriously enough to co- complain. Where, where is it? How's it going to be? And I want to just ask us to think about this. Maybe we don't complain enough. Are you with me? Maybe... We don't complain enough to God. And what I mean by that, of course, is if we take his promises serious, then we can bring a complaint of faith, oh God. And God doesn't squelch us, does he, when we speak from a heart of faith? What does he do? Oh my gosh, he, he, he gives us a word of assurance. He certainly did, Abram. Now, We need to pay close attention to the question that Abram asks. He is not asking, how am I going to get this land? Read it carefully. What's he asking? How can I know the land will be mine? If I could say it this way, Abram's got a theological question, not a practicality question. This is a question of, of theology. God, how can I know? Can I phrase it this way? How can I know for sure... Your word is trustworthy. And then what happens next just kind of freaks us out. If it doesn't, it should. What in the world is that? And Abram knew exactly what he was doing, didn't he? And God didn't instruct him to do that, but clearly Abram had some understanding that we're getting ready to do something here, and he prepares what they are getting ready to do. Uh, You have to imagine the scene in its vividness. I'm only going to give you a, a, a caricature of sorts up here. So uh, oftentimes when, when we're teaching, you know, I, wa- I want you to remember something. And this is one of those places where I really want you to remember this. And this is kind of, it's a bit silly, I know, but, but I'm, I'm gonna, I can't cut a real one. So I've got the, I've got the three-year-old ram. And uh, I just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk as I do this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a hunter and, and uh, you know, I've, you know, when you kill a deer, guys in their hunt, women in their hunt, you know, it's ugly. 
I mean, it, you, 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 you clean the deer. You, it's a large animal. Imagine, imagine a large ram, a large cow, a large goat. And, and what does Abram do? And it, it's a lot like, it, honestly, it's a lot like what I'm doing. And I want you to imagine Abram working all day long to cut this living being in two. I mean, first of all, of course, he had to kill it, right? Which he did. But then can you imagine when he starts splitting the animal, do you know how thick a skull is? He had some implements, clearly axes, sledge, something, you know, some, something to pound through this brain and this head. And as he does this, can you imagine the blood that is spilling out all over him? Guts falling out. Uh, it is gruesome. It's bloody. And quite frankly, it takes a while. He killed three of these larger animals and he splits them open and he splits them in two and he lays them on the ground so that you got half a dead animal here and half a dead animal here and blood and guts and entrails. And the longer he works, the more the blood seeps out and he goes to the next animal and he does the same and he goes to the next animal and he does the same. It's hot in that place i've cleaned animals like this and i'm telling you the flies and the bees and things start going and it just drive you crazy and he had buzzards coming down can you imagine hours this is taking him blood clearly blood covering him covering his feet he's movement between these animals he's back here working on the goat and the buzzards are now on the heifer and he's got to get them off and he goes back all day long preparing this gruesome, bloody scene of death. You want to see death? This is death. Mike Vogt reminded me, and I, I totally forgot this, but boy, we were in Africa, and they killed the cow for the, for the folks. Yeah, Diane. Big, 2,000-pound cow. You want to talk about a mess. Hard to watch, quite frankly. Well, Abram has made preparation, and as, as it gets dark, the promise, the promise comes. Look at verses 12 to 16. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will not will be that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You're going to die in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, this is 400 years, they're shooting at generations here of 100-year spans. In the fourth generation, they will return, your descendants will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Two things in this section. The first thing is the promise. You, Abram, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years. He doesn't name the nation, but do we know what this is talking about? 
How many of us know what it's talking about? Seriously. Yeah, we're talking about Egypt, right? Egypt, you know? And they go in, and, but I'm going to judge that nation. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Curse. I'm going to bless those who bless you. You're going to actually come out of there with tremendous blessing. They're going to come back here, and then they are going to take this land. But there's going to be a gap here, and it's 400 years because it says here, the sins of the Amorite uh, is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, there's the promise. What about this Amorite statement? The Amorites, that is a statement that encompasses all the nations in, in, in Israel. In, in, in the land that God's given them, it's occupied. And God says, these are the Amorites, and it's all different nations, you know. We've got to set aside our, our kind of cultural mindset, political correctness, and go, this is redemptive history, God revealing how he's saving us. And in this process, God says the Amorites, those people, the wicked, they still have more wickedness to go before their judgment comes. God is patient, but these wicked get to the point where there is no repentance. And at that moment, God's judgment comes And God's judgment comes through his people moving them out of that land, destroying them. And we go, God, that doesn't sound fair. Well, it's not fair. This is God in redemptive history. But please understand, their wickedness rose to the point where God then judged such that when Israel comes and destroys them, as Derek Kidner says, this is an act of justice, not an act of aggression. We cannot think of this like manifest destiny. This is not America moving westward, removing the native inhabitants. That's not what this is. This is God judging the wicked. God's going to remove Israel from the land for their wickedness, you see. An act of justice, not aggression. There's the preparation. There's this promise. The lands, your descendants will inherit the land. And then the assurance. Look at verses 17 to 21. I'm going to tell you, it gets really dark. Came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And and he describes the land and the people in it. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now, verse 18. If you're wondering, what is this animal killing all about? Verse 18. On that day, God made a covenant with Abram. Hebrew word, idea, made, covenant. Cut a covenant, you see. He cut a covenant with Abram on that day. The covenant actually carries the idea, carries the idea actually of binding. If you want to think of, the, of a biblical covenant, this is, this is not totally it. But think for in our day, it'd be similar to a contract. It's two people binding themselves, okay, binding themselves to obligations to each other. I want to buy your house. I'm going to pay you this much money. I'm going to give you this much now, and I'm going to buy it on this date. Sign my name. 
The seller says, I'm going to sell you my house. I'm going to sell it for this much money. I'm going to do these things before I sell it to you. And we're going to do it on this date, signs. Two people have entered what you know, a bilateral, two equals, have entered a contract. This is the idea of the covenant. But a biblical covenant with God, where it's God and man, you've got to understand, it's a, it's, a, it's a contract on steroids. It's bigger than a contract. It's not a bilateral covenant, you see. When God makes a covenant with man, this is a unilateral covenant. This is not a covenant of equals. This is God making a covenant with man. It's weightier than a contract. This covenant is our greatest hope. It's Abram's and it's ours. Lloyd, why do you say it's ours? Because Paul says in Galatians 3.9, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Please understand that song is true. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. That if you're in Christ, you understand. Can I say it? You, you were in Abram's loins. We're, we're Abram's children. Therefore, we have the promises. And the rest of the Bible, you see, is a playing out, an expression of fulfillment of this covenant. Now, here's the question. How is this covenant his, his and here's the key, and our Greatest assurance. Let's talk about the cutting of covenants in that day. Two tribal kings come together and they look at each other and go, you know what, let's come together. Let's make a covenant with each other because together we can have more land. We get more money. We do, you know, let's do this together. And so the two kings come together and they, they, they gather their families. Then the two leaders cut these animals in half and they Flay them out, body on each side, and a path of blood in the middle. And the two tribal leaders then come together and walk through that bloody mess. And in so doing, they are ratifying. It's like when you sign the contract. They're ratifying the contract and they're saying so be me if I fail to keep my end of the bargain. I should be dead like this. Death to me if I don't fulfill my part of this covenant. You see, it's a binding covenant. And so God, Abram says, how can I know? God says, cut them, split them. But then... Abram goes into a deep sleep. And when you read verse 17, the sun had set, it was dark, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Men and women, that's God. Burning bush, pillar of fire, smoke on mountains, that's God. You see, it's a, it's an, it's a picture of God And so when you watch the covenant ratified, oh my goodness, only God passes through the animals. Where's Abram? Where's Abram? He's asleep. What does that mean? It means this is an unconditional covenant. 
It means that God takes it upon himself alone. Himself alone. I am going to fulfill this covenant. Abram. What does Abram do to fulfill the covenant? What? (laughs) Sleeps. Nothing. Do you see that? This is... This is the, this the covenant of, of grace. This is Abram now, you see, he's asleep. But you know what Abram does do? Let's not miss this. He believes it. See, what does Abraham bring to it? I'm going to trust you, God. Man, do you see the, do you see, do you see Ephesians 2 in there? Do you see the, the gospel coming where We come with nothing and Jesus did it all. God, how am I going to know you keep? Because I keep my promises. I, I, you know, some people disagree on this, but there's a sense in which God can be saying, you know, if I don't do this, I should be dead. You can't be dead. Exactly. That's how sure the promise is. That's how sure every promise is. Now, it sort of gets better. Better is not the right word. It gets a little fuller. Look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Wait a minute. You know, you can either say God is, uh, you know, he's got bad English or, or, or he's mistaken with his facts because they don't have the land. And God speaks in past tense. I've given it. Yeah. It, it's like this. The promises of God are as certain and sure as this next sentence I'm going to say. The Titans are going to pick Marcus Mariota with their second pick in the NFL draft. How about that? And you go, well, Lloyd, that, that, that already happened. And I go, yeah. That's how sure the promises of God are. That he can speak, he can speak of them. God can speak of them as having already happened. That's certainty and assurance. I had about eight or nine lessons out of the text, and I've got time here. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you three or four quick lessons. Let's just step back from the text and say, oh my gosh, what in the that's, a, that's amazing. It is. What does it mean? How do we apply it? What does it mean to us today? Can I suggest a few things? The first one is this. I don't want us to miss this. God wants us to be assured of his promises. Do you see in the story who initiates the conversations both times? Who brings the conversation up? God does. Abram's standing there and God says, you know, I'm going to give you this land, you know, and and, how do I? God wants us to know that his promises are sure and certain. He's always initiating in that way towards us. There's a second thing. And it would be as sure as the promises are, so too the opposition. I find it fascinating that Abram says, you know, literally turns to God and says, how can I know for sure that I'll possess it? And do you see what God says in verse 13? God said to Abram, no for certain. Yeah, yeah, no for certain. 
your descendants are going to be in bondage for 400 years, oppressed. What? That's not what I want to know. I want to know how. As sure as the promise, so sure is the difficulty. So certain is the dark place you may find yourself today. So certain is the struggle. So certain is the suffering. Read the New Testament. Oh my gosh, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. And the New Testament is replete with a reminder that you will suffer on your way to the promise. This is the Christian life. And if you doubt it, don't miss Jesus who suffered more than we ever will and received the promise. As sure as the promise, so to the opposition. And then the third thing is the fulfillment of the promise in his lifetime was not necessary for Abram to die in peace. This is amazingly wonderful. I mean, tell you're not going to get the land. But you're going to die in peace. In a ripe old age. I think many of you know this, but I lost my dad this week. Early Wednesday morning, I got a phone call. And uh, my father passed away. He, it, it, he was in great care with my brother and sister-in-law. I went to Atlanta immediately to their house and I had a great conversation with my dad. He had a renal failure. That it's been a year of that and it finally came that time. And a year ago he said, I don't want to do dialysis. And two weeks ago when the doctor said, you know, this is, you can do dialysis or you can die. He said, I don't want to do dialysis. And so he passed away. And I want you to know, I'm, I mean this on the bottom of my heart. My dad knew Christ. He, uh, he died in peace. I mean it. He died in peace. He didn't have much. I'm, that's the, literally, this man did not have much. Oh, but what he had was what really mattered. My dad died in the arms of my brother. And with my sister and sister-in-law in his face, And he breathed out his last breath. How good is that? And Abram, Abram says, I want, how am I going to have this land? And God says, you're not. But you're going to die in peace. Why? Abram knew the king of peace. He just met him a chapter earlier. Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of the city of peace. And there's something that, that Abram saw that my dad saw. I want you to know this, that Hebrews tells us. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. Hebrews 11, 9. By faith, Abram lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. How could he die in peace? 
because he was looking for a better land. The land matters. That strip of land over there matters, yes. But even Abram and we look past that land to the promised land, you see. It lasts forever. God's prepared for us. Abram died in peace. And so do we when we look to the promised land. Let me get very specific. When you place your faith, and your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Let me add a third lesson, or fourth lesson, if I may. And I mentioned this earlier. I want to take us back here. It is often only in the darkness of night that we can see what really matters. I hate that, in a way, because I'm using that metaphorically as a dark places in life, too. But it's only in those places, often only in those places, I'll say it that way, that we actually, it's it's like right there we see it. That's what really matters. When do we really see what matters? In death. When do we see what really matters? In a hard place. When do we see what really, really matters? When we're hurting and we can't see our way. And so in these last few moments, I told you that the text would take us to an IDA-designated pristine darkness, and I'm going to take us there, almost. I'm going to have the lights come down. We're just going to sit in the darkness for a moment, and I'm going to walk us through some thoughts that I'd like you to consider. First of all, as those lights go down, I want to invite you in the darkness to look up at the night sky. And surely Abram saw something like that. And do you realize, though Abram didn't know it, if you have placed your faith in Christ, Abram was actually looking at you. God kept his promise, which is why we sit here today. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And now you're imagining in your mind's eye in this darkness. I want you to imagine your own dark place, wherever that may be, whatever that may be. And I want you to look real hard. Because in that place, a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed through the bloodied animals. 
in that place in your life, God says to you, I keep my promises. And then finally, would you go in your mind's eye to a cross and there see the Lord Jesus Christ split open, dead. Yeah, his body broken, just like these animals. Why? Because he took the curse of the covenant for all of us covenant breakers. He took our punishment. But death could not hold him. Oh, great God. Thank you for the clarity of darkness from which we see those things that matter most. And what always matters most is that we're mindful. Your promises are trustworthy. Help us trust you even more. In Christ's name, amen. Let's bring the house lights back up. I don't want you to walk out in the darkness. Some things we can only see in the light, right? Let's stand together. I'll send you out with words from Paul. Short. And absolutely to the point of our text today, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he who calls. And he, you see, he will bring it to pass. God bless.